Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Hello, listeners, and welcome back. Before we get started on the last leg of our journey with Marilyn Monroe, just wanted to check in with you and let you know that we would love to hear from you any kind of suggestions or ideas for different topics that you're interested in. We like to follow things that Zoe and I really enjoy, but we thought maybe you'd have some really good ideas as well. So feel free to drop us a line at foiblespodcast at gmail.com and we will definitely uh, take any idea under consideration. I want to say one more thing, which is that we don't have any ratings or what, what do they call it when they write a comment about the podcast? Reviews. Reviews. So whoever wants to be the first to rate and review us on any don't, You don't even platform. have to bother. You don't even have to bother to review us. Just rate us because that's what matters. I guess so. <laughs> and if you want to rate review us, that's fine. And if in your review you put some suggestion or idea, what we would love to hear is maybe give us the idea of maybe three books that you suggest and maybe we might pick one of them or three movies and we might pick one of those to look at and, and talk about. There's yeah. so much out there that we might not even think of. Do it. And I promise that if you do rate and review, then we will watch, well, we will choose one of your suggestions and do that. Unless it's pornography or horror. <laughs> we might do it if it's horror. Might. Might do it if it's pornography. Go ahead and click on over to iTunes or wherever you're listening this from and rate us and review us and leave us a suggestion and then we will choose and five stars is good oh please yeah (laughs) if you rate us one star i don't know we'll cry all right so uh, we're gonna move along with the topic of marilyn monroe we talked last time about her burgeoning career some of her most popular movies and also some of her relationships including her boyfriend joe dimaggio and the calendar scandal in which she poses nude So if you want to hear any more about that, you can listen to um, episode two of Marilyn Monroe and Subversive Blondes. So we're going to move on here. Uh, Marilyn does marry Joe DiMaggio after they dated quite a few years. Now, I think I covered this last time that there was an ongoing tension between the two of them about the fact that Joe, like Marilyn's first husband, was a conservative man of the period where the woman was the helpmeet, was stayed at home, had the kids, the man was the one who went out in public, the man was sort of the public face of the relationship. In this case, we've got two equals in fame. And we have one individual, which would be Joe, who had reached his peak, had ascended to the highest heights of his career as a baseball player. And now he was becoming a businessman. He was doing various things like that. He was still very famous, but he was no longer at the apex of his career. Marilyn was ascending, in my opinion, just really was reaching the apex of her career when she and Joe married. She had the ambition. She's the one who wants to go forward and build uh, strength to strength. Whereas Joe, he's ready to begin retiring from the public and he wants to pull her with him and have her at home and all to himself. And that just was not going to cut it. And one of their ongoing conflicts was the way she dressed, that she was revealing too much, too much decolletage, which is the you know, showing the breasts. Cleavage. It was really much more uh, about that than her skirts weren't particularly short. Hmm. But we do get to a period here. I'm not going to go a lot into their marriage because there's a lot of information out there. But I will say that Joe, being the very typical old style, old world kind of guy, the way he was raised, he could be pretty rough and apparently there was physical abuse going on. Um, He did smack Marilyn around when he thought that she was stepping out of line in terms of displaying herself and one time she did show up with a broken finger that she was Mm. hiding in her coat uh, and so she covered it up but she again subversively she covered it up. She stood by Joe. She did all that yet she still left a hint out there of the reality of what happened. I mean, she didn't have to show up with that splint on her finger at a public place, right? Yeah. So she she left it there. And I think that in the end, when they ended up getting divorced and they did not live together or were not married for very long, I think it was about a year-ish, the public sentiment was on Marilyn's side. Although Joe was still beloved and I idolized, Marilyn's fragility And the way she used her acting talents to show her grief and her pain. And and it was all staged. It was all staged and, and she was coached by the lawyer and so forth about how to present herself to the press. 
completely drew people into supporting her vulnerability and fragility, which was real and also not real. And that's what was so interesting about her character. So I will go back and talk about the seven-year itch because the seven-year itch really was the turning point in their relationship. The conflicts and the division between them had been bubbling and it would come up and then Marilyn would smooth it over and then it would bubble up because she would do something that he didn't like and it seemed like Marilyn would often do the smoothing over but it also he did love her and he was very constant and so he always wanted to be there and he really did support her career unlike her first husband who just wanted her to sit at home and Joe DiMaggio wanted her to sit at home but if she was going to work he was a businessman enough to give her advice and to support her in that way and trying to help her not get taken advantage of by various business managers and sort of the the sharks that were circling her and Marilyn would sometimes follow his advice and sometimes she wouldn't and so there sometimes could be divisive camps around Marilyn's business as well and Joe also hated her various acting coaches because they were intruding into the relationship he felt with an intimacy that he felt should be his alone and I don't actually necessarily disagree with him because I don't think these acting coaches were particularly positive influences. But I did say before, I also think Marilyn used these people as a way to deflect anyone coming too close to her, including her husband's. So with the seven-year itch, talking about these bubbling conflicts going on, this was the turning point. This is sort of like the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. There was no turning back. <laughs> In that case, the North was going to win, and in this case, Joe and Marilyn were not going to stay together. And in, during the seven-year itch, I can't believe anybody doesn't know about this, but it's quite possible that they don't. It's just it's so iconic an image in my mind. That is the movie in which Marilyn is wearing a white halter dress, and the wind from the subway rushing grate. subway grate blows up her skirt and it blows her skirt up and in the front she's trying to hold it down and it's blowing up to the sides and behind her there's even a statue of this image and you can look it up online and see it but it's everywhere and it's been repeated over and over in different movies for example there's a film called the woman in red and it's from the 80s it has a, a beautiful beautiful model named kelly lebrock is in it now does anybody remember her name probably not but it was a Gene Wilder comedy, and instead of wearing the white dress, she's wearing a red dress. She walks over the grate, it blows up her skirt, and then she walks away, and then she so much enjoyed it, she walks back and lets <laughs> it blow up her skirt again. So they do a little, but it's a little riff on the Marilyn That's imagery. Funny. It is so iconic. Now, The Seven Year Itch was directed by Billy Wilder, who is one of the greatest directors ever. He just had such a sophisticated and deft hand at comedy and he also was a pretty fiery feisty guy Marilyn at this point was not so drug addled as she became later and so shut down emotionally and she wasn't really having as much of a difficult time she was having a difficult time with the studio and you know remembering her lines remembering her lines but not like she did before she was better and this play that was translated to the screen she was playing opposite a veteran broadway actor named tom yule who's totally not good looking at all he has a certain insouciance a little bit of that nervous anxious charm of the bougie middle class male of the time which is perfect that's what this character is so he's perfect and he played the part on broadway so he's coming over that was kind of intimidating to her but when you see her in this film Everyone else is just a platform, a frame for her. She's luminous. She's beautiful. And she plays the Marilyn Monroe character that we talked about, the ditzy blonde with a little bit of pretended unawareness who's actually kind of got a zen-like wisdom to her <laughs> and a sexuality that is at one time completely soft, inviting, and uncritical, and at the same time, a little bit inaccessible. So anyway, in the film, she plays the upstairs neighbor of this middle-class, middle-aged business executive whose family goes away for the summer to 
the Adirondacks or something, which was often the case in New York. It was so hot, the wife and the children would go and stay in a nice little camp where it was cool, and the husband would stay and work during the week, and then he'd go and hang out with the family on the weekends. So that's the situation. He's alone in his apartment. Marilyn lives upstairs, just picturing Marilyn at her peak. He meets her. He's been married seven years, so he's got the seven-year itch. Right. It's all about infidelity and temptation and Marilyn is subterfuge yeah and she is the unwitting in her mind implement or siren to that kind of adultery and she in the film she likes him uncritically he has he has all sorts of Walter Mitty type fantasies about him being the romantic man who sweeps her off his feet, wearing a smoking jacket and holding a glass of champagne, you know. And every time it's it's totally burst by her innocence and her honesty. And she always acts like she doesn't realize that he's leching on her. Right. But... Does she or doesn't she? How could she not? Yeah. It's kind of the conceit, yeah. And it's a very interesting interplay, and I like watching it as I get older because I begin to, maybe I'm just reading into it, but I begin to see different interpretations where you could have some fun Mm. with, like, what is she doing with him? Like, for example, like I said, New York City is very, very hot in the summer, and she doesn't have air conditioning in her apartment. And so she comes down to his apartment and is saying, oh, can I, you know, just stay down here? You have air conditioning. And she says, oh, yes, I, I sit in front of the refrigerator and I fan myself. And I think she Im- implies that she's nude. And, of course, that's fodder for his imagination. And she puts her underwear in the freezer. <laughs> and then she puts it I'll on. I'll have to try that sometime. <laughs> I don't think the cold, would, the coolness would, would last. Would not last, Like no. maybe a second. And yeah. then it's, it's warmed up by your body heat. And so there's all of these various things and in the middle of the movie becomes the scene where she's walking with him down the street and the wind blows up from the tunnel now anybody who's been in new york city or anywhere you know that that warm that wind is pretty warm (laughs) but it blows up under her skirt and she's giggling and enjoying it because she's so hot and it's just fun it's just total fun and, and 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 joyousness well when they were filming this they filmed it on the street of of New York. I think that the actual take they have in the movie was filmed in the studio, but they did do some shooting. And everyone knew it, and everyone was going to be Maryland! Yeah. So there were people everywhere, and, you know, they're held back by barricades, and it was a really big deal. Well, Joe came down, because, you know, his his wife was filming, and she's there, having the wind blow up her skirt, and you look at it now, and she's wearing these panties that are quite, today it'd be a, a thong, right? Yeah. She's wearing these very modest panties, and you see her leg all the way up to the hip but then and then you see her behind is if it were a bit wearing a bathing suit so it's really quite chaste and I think even at the time the clothing and the what the flesh that was revealed was not it's just the context that makes it so it's risque. the context and it's her and it's the the flowering of 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 sensuality I yeah. won't say sexuality in this case I really think it's feeling her own body and the joy of the of of having sensation and of course, the wind is coming up right up to her, you know, yeah, her her um, crotchal her, region, her crotchal region, uh, in a in a very pleasurable way, right? So you know, but anyway, Joe saw that and he stalked off, and that was pretty much going to be the end of their marriage. That just huh. was downhill from there. So they got married in 1954, and divorced in 1955, and I think that, yeah. The decision to divorce was only about nine months after they got married, and then it Mm. took some time for the divorce actually to happen. Marilyn was so well advised, as I said earlier, about how to announce the divorce. They told her how to look. He says, no, no. And then you take my arm, and you lean on me, and look down. Don't look at the camera. And, you know, hold your handkerchief up to your eyes, and gave her all of this coaching. And, of course, she was dressed very soberly when they came out, and they did this whole announcement. Mm -hmm. And Joe, I mean... He was angry about this sort of sexual possessiveness he had on this, maybe even more than that sexual, but his possessiveness of ownership of her. But when it came to the divorce, he was a gentleman. He did not put her down. There was no ugly fighting. And if you watch there, go on YouTube, you can watch her announcement. You can watch the whole thing. And you see 
every element she was told to do. She was a consummate actress. And I'm not saying that she didn't suffer and it didn't make her sad, but the way she presented it for her benefit and for a woman to be divorced was worse than a man to be divorced. Right. And Joe was the pure baseball hero, right? And she was the sex pod. Amazing how she walked that line. So they did get the divorce, and everyone knows this story. Thereafter, for the rest of her life, Joe was with her, you know, when she wanted him to be. So he, he, yeah, it's very interesting. And so he, they still would go to dinner or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And he would advise her maybe. Yep, all the time. Huh. And in fact, reporters were always saying, like one time a reporter came up to Marilyn and said, so is this a reconciliation? And Joe looks at her and says, is it, hun? And she says, and she made some, I, again, I wish I could quote it for you, but she made some sort of comment like, we're just very good friends or, you know, yeah. we're the best of friends because she was not going to get back into that. So you can see she was she pushed was around. Idiot, yeah. And though she had had some physical abuse when she was young, she put up with it to a certain extent. But then I guess one day there was some real screaming and yelling and banging. People just could hear it. Nobody knew mm. what happened except the two of them. But that was it. That She drew the line. They were done. And so she was able to do that, at least certainly earlier in her in her life. It's very interesting that they became friends after that. Like it's really yeah. kind of a mark of the time in a strange way where it's like both that kind of behavior was acceptable and even kind of like Understood. part of the course for that. Yeah. yeah. And so today, you know, of course you'd be like, he's a fucking abuser. He's canceled. Hate him. Excised from my life kind of deal. And it's interesting that they could, they could within that find that they were not compatible and yet they were compatible as friends and go on that way. Well, and one of the reasons is because Marilyn was the star. I mean, and I mean that in life. Mm-hmm. She was the, she had to be the nexus around all, that all things revolved around. That's that's who she was. And Joe used to used to be that way for him. And, and that's not something that he really needed. I mean, he expected deference, yeah. for sure. So he was willing to revolve around her once he no longer had that the marriage and the, the marriage meant ownership. His, yeah. She was now she was separate from him and independent and he he was very good to her and was willing to take care of her when she needed it. There was one point where she was in the hospital and who knows did she try to kill herself or did she almost kill herself accidentally through taking drugs and alcohol? But this happened. This had happened a few times and there were times when she threatened to do it. So I think it could have been. Yeah. But he would get her from the hospital. He would protect her. He would be a shield for her when she needed it and was willing to accept it from him. And then just skipping ahead, and this is a very, very famous story. When she died, every week there would be a fresh bouquet of roses placed on her tombstone as long as he lived. Hmm. Aw. That's so sweet. It is sweet. Oh, I know. Does it make you want to cry? Yeah. You're thinking, why couldn't, if that kind of love and constancy couldn't have come up in supporting her agency? Mm-hmm. That would have been an amazing marriage. A yeah, marriage, for sure. amazing marriage, and it is. It's very touching that he 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 did love her that much. Well, it's really great that they got to be friends afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So they, they did get to be together in a certain way, and we don't. And they probably didn't have any kind of intimate sexual relationship. I wouldn't imagine because again, that triggers that sort of possessiveness. From, that possessiveness, and and, and yeah, he and did, he seems by the book kind of rules guy too so he would be like no we're not together anymore right correction when she died and this is very touching he placed a 20-year order for a half dozen roses to be placed upon her grave three times a week that's a big order that's a big order and that's a big amazing commitment now Marilyn died in 63 and so that went to 83 and Joe lived to 1999, but from what I've read, that continued until his death. Wow. And that's that's very loving. Quick question. You probably don't know the answer, but was, in her personal life, was she going by Norma at this point, or was no, everyone calling Ma- her Marilyn? Marilyn, Marilyn okay. yeah. Including her husband. and Yeah, yeah. And in 1954, which yeah. is the year she married DiMaggio, she actually changed her name legally to uh. Marilyn Monroe. So she was no longer Norma Jean Mortensen or Norma Jean Baker, either way. Okay, so seven-year itch. That was the, the turning point in her marriage. 
She completed the movie. And she completed the movie, and it was a... Resounding... Success. (laughs) It was a huge, huge success. And like I said, she plays that, I think, that film and uh, one we will be talking about later, Some Like It Hot. That really is... the keys. That's the quintessential Marilyn persona without any adulteration to it at all it's just that pure core and it's just amazing what how it just it okay also gentlemen prefer blondes goes in there too well it does yeah. i guess i was thinking after this point okay. but you're right i yeah. agree those three are yeah and there's just this it's like she finds the she's found the perfect little golden hammer to just tap on the iconic uh, iconic is not the word i want archetypal gong gong within each of us yeah and she just ding and it just resonates and it resonates at the perfect tone for that enjoyment and uh, and when she tries to be an actress and she was a good actress Mm -hmm. and you couldn't have done this without being a good actress and i hope i'm not saying this too much because i don't want to repeat myself ad nauseum but it's true that's okay we're just we're hacking away at the Berlin Wall of uh, Marilyn, people believing that Marilyn was just just a, a big dummy. A, yeah, a big dumb a sex. Bimbo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to. That's what, exactly what we're trying to do. But when she becomes uh, tries to become at the behest of um, the actor studio and Lee Strasberg and um, Lee Strasberg's wife, who was her acting coach and say oh you you have to be a great actress if you want to heal if you want to be whole if you want to be who you are meant to be and that will make everything right you need to be a great actress Mm -hmm. and so then she would aspire to be in a Dostoevsky story or these great Russians and and she did love the Russians and she read those books she read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky she was no you know she was no intellect but she was also no dummy either and she had a great thirst for knowledge but when she tries to bring that element in, it just simply isn't as successful. And I'm not sure if it's a situation like Marion Davies. And for those of you who don't know who she was, she was a silent screen star. She had been a Ziegfeld Follies girl. She was, like Marilyn, a natural comic delight. She was smart, too. And you could see more, you know, she portrayed that intellect a little bit more than Marilyn did. She was not a she was not a sex pot. She was not she did not portray it. She was more of a innocent, fun, flappery kind of fun girl. She did not have that element that Marilyn had. But the analogy holds in that they were both natural. That was like the groove that was in them already. And when they ran that groove and applied all that they were to it, they were genius. And unfortunately for Marion Davies, she was the mistress of William Randolph Hearst, who was one of the mm. great newspaper magnet, magnates of the... Uh, he's the Citizen Kane. He's the Citizen Kane exemplar, so they say. Uh-huh. Um, and he was... He loved her. He did, he did love her. But he loved her in a way where he couldn't look at her for who she was and value that. He wanted her to be a great actress. He wanted her to be seen by the world to be a mm. great actor. And she just wasn't. I mean, she was a great comedian. And you've seen it. It's uh, Show People. Yeah. She was in a film called Show People. I highly recommend this film. Uh, delight. Absolute delight. She's able to do imitations of all the great acting actors of the day. Just And this is silent. So she does it merely by facial expression and body language. If you know these people, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I know who that is. That's really delightful. She was a, But William Randolph Hearst, who funded her movies, pushed her to be in these serious dramas. It just... They kind of flopped. They yeah. kind of flopped. She wasn't bad, but she wasn't... She was not as good as the better dramatic actors of the time. So this is what I see as an analogy to Marilyn. When Marilyn herself and her coaches pushed her into being in these more serious roles, that vestige or that piece of her of the, her creation is there but then it gets sort of muddied muddied by the drama the drama and, the, and there's a clash too in in a lot of the films where she's still like seen by the other characters by the world within she's acting mm-hmm. as like she's like ooh the blonde ooh hot all the men are lusting after her and stuff but because she's doing this other thing it has a different kind of effect 
maybe she just has a harder time portraying an inner world because she projects such a strong outer world in her character. Or it could be that the only way for her to project that inner world is through that particular character that she's created and she never found a way to do that. She tried to step away from it Hmm. and create something different and that may not have worked for her because that was not her gold. And an example of this is Bus Stop. Yeah. Bus Stop was another play and this was Marilyn's baby. It was purchased for her and it was directed by a Broadway director named Josh Logan who was apparently a very fiery, crazy kind of wacky guy and he was warned do not yell at Marilyn do not even look at her funny because she will crumble and she will go into her trailer and she will not come out oh, well. <laughs> and so he tried and apparently he would like rip he would be so frustrated because this is really I I think this is really the film where she begins to to crumble because she's at the peak of her success and she actually has within her grasp the opportunity to have the career that she wants. She formed her own production company called Marilyn Monroe Productions, which everybody laughed at. Oh, who's a stupid blonde? And oh, she's got these pretensions to being something, which women through the decades have had, even now, uh, come up against. But it was worse for her because of, of because the time. Of her reputation and, and because of her reputation and time. Yeah, and, and her image. This film was not part of her production company, but it was part of one of her deals, and she had a lot of say in, in it. And she just totally, she could not handle it. She had knowledge about film and she had a lot to offer in terms of timing and all sorts of things uh, about performance. But in terms of business and in terms of holding up the uh, production side of a, of a film, she just didn't have it. You've got to be really strong and really like... You really do. Lots of energy and just constant or steady and you have to be very yeah like you said very strong i think is in her case is really the key and so she went onto this film set you can see her starting to have a little bit of a freak out the drugs she's taking and the alcohol is being kick in and, and and exacerbating her paranoia so she goes onto this film and one of the things that happens is there is a another blonde in the film and she freaks out she has a fit and the blonde was uh, Hope Lang. She's who, just a minor character. Yeah, just a minor character, but, but Marilyn freaks out. And she gets very, very angry and freaks out again when the lead actor, Don Murray, who had come in from the stage, and he was kind of a the cowboy. I don't think he's very good looking, but he was he's tall, tall and got a nice... Lanky yeah. and strong. And, yeah. I don't know. He's got nice features, I guess. Yeah. I What he, I really disliked is his character and his role in the movie. Right. But we could talk more about that. Yeah, we definitely will. Yeah, and, and he was younger than Marilyn, and he's the one he's supposed to be in love with her, deeply, deeply in love with her in the film. But he was interested in Hope Lang. The two of them ended up getting married and they were having a romance. And Marilyn hated that. She felt like personally affronted by the fact that he wasn't focused on her. Yeah. As a, as a romantic object. And apparently in one scene, there's a scene in a bar room. And they didn't keep this take in, so we don't see it. But he grabbed her, he grabbed her dress and he tore the train on the dress and it was an accident I mean he didn't mean to do it and she got really angry and she she whipped around and this thing had was covered with sequins and he she cut his face by hitting him with the train of this dress almost just missing his eye and and so there was a lot of problems on this set yeah and she was very tantrum and this side of her she called the monster so the monster would come out and I'm sure she couldn't help it. It's not okay, but she could, you know, she was out of control. Yeah. And there's another scene in the film where they're at the big rodeo and her character Cherie runs across the rodeo space, the arena, and they were trying to shoot this at golden time, I guess, when the light was just perfect, and Marilyn would not come out of her trailer. She would not come out of her trailer, and they're going and they were going to lose it. They were going to lose their opportunity. They had, And then it ended up they had one chance to do one take. And she would not come out of her trailer. So Josh Logan went into her trailer and he grabbed her by the arm and he pulled her out. And he said, you're going to do this. And they forced her to do the scene. Wow. And she runs across. And while she's running, her shoe comes off. Yeah. And Logan was going to call cut. And luckily, 
um, someone told him not to or something stopped him from doing it. And she ran back, picked up the shoe, and then ran off, which makes the scene so much more it's, interesting. It's good, yeah. Yeah, it's a good scene. And she knew it. And someone wrote in a book, they huh. they said that she had lost, she then lost confidence for the rest of the film in this director because he didn't see that. He didn't see that that was good, that huh. that was good for the film, that, that serendipitous moment. And she did, and she saw it. So that's very interesting. interesting. But I see this is, this is, begins her slide down the... I mean, it's certainly more apparent just because it's not a movie that's well suited to her, but... The movie overall is kind of problematic. Are we doing yeah. reviews right now? Go go okay, ahead because go. at the end, just so you know, we're going to list our top three Marilyn Monroe movies. Each of us thinks it's the top three, and I think our we we're going to be pretty much almost the yeah. same. There's some honorable mentions, maybe. Well, no, then I'll give. Well, for me, I'll yeah. give my um, like my uh, lesser known gem. Okay, that's how I'm. That's how I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, sounds good. Do it. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this movie, I mean, for me, for a modern viewer, it's just going to be problematic because the entire conceit of it is that the young cowboy guy, he's going to the rodeo, he sees her, he falls in love with her, she's a saloon dancer or whatever, and she really does not want him. And that the whole tension of it is him picking her up, taking her where he wants her to go, saying they're getting married, going to force her to do this, basically, but he's so naive and... Uh, Bumpkin-y and he doesn't know what he's doing or whatever so it's fine but like he just he forces her to do he basically forces her into so many situations where she's expresses that she's uncomfortable and says no multiple times I don't know just like for a modern viewer it should make you kind of uncomfortable even though she falls in love with him in the end and even though his intentions are good so I just have a huge problem with the movie overall it was awkward to watch um because I couldn't sympathize with him at all, and she just, she she literally runs away multiple times, and he literally catches her. You and know, she's like she's crying, and she's beating him, and saying, "Go away!" Let me look. She's running, she's locking uh. herself in rooms, and I mean, really, it's just it's it's kind of awful. <laughs> it's awful, and he's just so like, "Oh no, I just love you. I'm gonna lasso you because I'm a cowboy." Literally, literally lassos her. <laughs> literally and it's funny because uh because he's a nice guy she should just be with him yeah and 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 really no means yes yeah exactly yeah and it really is i i i don't really care for now that kind of problematic theme maybe it's because i'm older and i've seen a lot of things when i was younger that i was totally unaware but even this one if it had had something witty about it or if it really funny or if it had was just a great story or something great about it. Even just a redemptive moment where he's like, oh, sorry, I still want to be with you. And she would be like, okay, now it's my choice. You right, know? right, right. Exactly. <sighs> and and if there had been something like that, I would say, okay, I can, I'll, I can handle this. But I don't, I don't really like this one very much. I, and I don't think that she's at her peak. I, she is faltering. Well, this is happening, you know, divorce from Joe DiMaggio. And she's back together. She, I guess during this period she dated Marlon Brando. And Arthur Miller, who is going to be her next husband. So, and Arthur Miller divorced his wife. There's a lot of onks there. So they get back together at this point, and they get married in 1956. So all this is kind of going on at the same time. Plus, she's starting her production company. Plus, she's trying Ooh. to get agents. I mean, it's it's craziness. Plus, she's really ramping up the use of, of drugs and alcohol, probably due to all this stress. What drugs was she using? I don't know. You mean prescription? Yeah. Oh, okay. She had a lot of doctors. And in those days, and even now, I mean, look at the Michael Jackson scandal. Yeah. Uh, where uh, he was given way more... Heinous amounts than of Than he should have had. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so back then, it was even less regulated. I mean, you know, that you could just get it anywhere. So she, yeah, she had a pipeline with various doctors and friends even who would just get her stuff. Basically, she had, there was an, I don't know if he was her agent, but he, manager, kind of, he was in her circle who, and did some of that kind of work. He was at the uh, Schwab's drugstore. He had kind of his office, quote unquote, hmm. at Schwab's drugstore drug upstairs, which is the famous drugstore in Hollywood, where supposedly uh, Lana Turner was uh, discovered at, oh. s- sitting at the soda fountain. Uh-huh. Um, he was known for being the channel for getting pills and whatever you wanted. He could get you whatever you wanted. And, of course, the studios were pill pushers themselves. And there are a lot of stories about, especially young actors and actresses, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland being good examples, where they were young, they wanted them to have lots of pep. 
Uh, and then they wanted them to be able to go to sleep, and they got them on the roller coaster of uppers so, and downers. Okay. And for Judy, a lot of it was her weight, as they were trying to keep her from gaining weight. And they also, um, she, had a, she had a certain amount of pain because things like they would strap her breasts down, like in Wizard of Oz, right. really tight because they wanted her to look younger. And um, so I just pretend I don't know about that when I watch The Wizard of Oz because it is sad. an amazing film. Yeah. Ugh. Conflicted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So they would prescribe a lot of pills and the studio is mostly doing it in order to regulate their actors. Right. Or, or, and this is very common, especially in the uh, earlier years, even more, where actors would end, oh, they're drug addicts and they died of drugs. Well, the reason they got on drugs is because they were injured during a picture, like falling down a hill or whatever, and they had terrible pain, like Peter Laurie is an example of that. And what the studios would do is they'd get the doctor to take care of them, meaning the doctor would just give them drugs for pain so they could keep working and not stop working. Mm. So they're, you know. Yeah, it is pretty brutal. Anyway, so that's what's going on while she's doing Bus Stop. I wouldn't say it's not worth watching. I think one can be, you know, it's, it's... I just thought about um, Marlene and Dietrich's suppositories. And oh, in my mind, I was like, well, she probably didn't do suppositories up her butt. <laughs> like Marlene Dietrich. <laughs> what did she call those? Um, her uh, friend Lamas. Oh, Fernando Lamas. Oh, that was so she could sleep. Yeah. Really, if you want to listen to our previous episodes on Marlene Dietrich, it is pretty yeah. entertaining. She did get hooked on some pills and stuff, and she had these these sleeping suppositories, and she'd stick them up her... She named them after this actor who she thought bored her to sleep. She so. really did have that snarky, bitter wit. Yeah, I mean, she was... She was funny. She could be very funny. So, uh, so bus stop. Not a good film. The next film uh, that she did was The Prince and the Showgirl. Now, this is just rife. Oof. Rife. Oh, it's a terrible movie. Did we even watch the whole thing? I watched it. Did okay. you watch it? Did you even see it? Uh, which one With is Lawrence this? Lawrence Olivier. It's where she's a showgirl and she goes to London uh, for the prince. And Lawrence Olivier is kind of this old, kind of an old prince. And... I feel like maybe we watched this when I was younger, but we didn't bother rewatching. No, it. we did not watch this when you were younger. I would never. Oh. Me- I, I've only watched it once. Okay, then no. I didn't make. I didn't make you together. watch this one, and it's terrible. Uh, and it probably it could have been good. It was again. It was a stage play, and the it was Marilyn's desire to do this play, and it could have been perfect for us. About she plays a showgirl, and Laurence Olivier, who was considered the greatest actor in the world, and I don't think so but that's for another podcast. He plays the prince. And the deal was Marilyn's production company was going to produce this, and she would be the executive producer. And Olivier was going to be the director. So while this... That's interesting. A big power division between the two leads. Well, and also very different. Yeah. Very, very, very different um, uh, modes altogether. Olivier was the classic Shakespearean mode, and Marilyn was a modern... Uh, star and she had talent but she was not and it intimidated her because she was not the Shakespearean actress but she charmed him and this is the amazing thing he came to New York and she come he and he waits two hours for her to come down because that's Marilyn and she as soon as she comes down the stairs he is having fantasies of running away and marrying her and that's what he wants to do I mean seriously wow and at the time he was married to Vivian Lee who was Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Right. And uh, Vivian Lee was a gorgeous, beautiful, classically beautiful woman, I think, with the dark black hair and these beautiful violet eyes and just gorgeous. But she was mentally ill. Okay. And so this was... Olivier, I don't know a lot about him. I don't have a real great impression of him as <laughs> a person. You never liked him very much in I don't terms of I acting. don't like well, I don't like him as an actor, yeah. yeah. But as a person I think well, yeah, he he had a big ego and I yeah, he he was no saint and so on and so forth. But Vivian Lee was probably driving him absolutely insane because she was like manic depressive. And okay. that's just hell, right? So seeing this del- this concoction of delight come down the stairs and sit at his feet oh, and wow. talk to him and talk about the film and, and be intelligent about it too and have ideas. But Olivier, again, he was more old style and classic and he wanted to be the director. And after this initial seduction that Marilyn does where he's just, oh, oh my God. She's amazing. I mean, all of a sudden when she goes to England to do this shoot, 
all uh, all these things fall in, apart because a she's late and he that's that is not the discipline and dynamic of the theater she's late she can't remember her lines she her, arthur miller goes with her because they've been married by this point she is a stanislavski method student he hates it he hates stanislavski he hates the method he hates this modern thing and a lot of it is about his ego because um on a streetcar named desire which is the great great tennessee williams play this play was directed by Ilya kazan who was one of the founders of that school that maryland went to for the method and he directed the original play in new york with marlon brando and jessica tandy and then Olivier directed it for the London stage starring his wife, Vivian Lee, who Vivian Lee, by the way, played Blanche Dubois in the film with Marlon Brando. Oh, okay. That's, that's the deal. So, so she takes, she does the play with Olivier. Then she goes to film and Elia Kazan, who did the New York production on stage, he directs the film. So, so they have a little switcheroo there. So Olivier is expecting her to do what he had said and she makes it clear she prefers Eli Kazan's direction. So that's one of the things. Huge, huge ego clash there. So he just hates that whole school. And in fact, late, even later, um, much later, in the, I think it was in the 80s that um, they did The Marathon Man is a film where Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier did the film together. And Laurence Olivier plays a Nazi uh, based on Mengele, maybe even his name was Mengele, Dr. Mengele, who was an actual doctor. Mm-hmm. And he, there's this whole thriller thing. I don't know if this movie holds up. We should try it sometime. Anyway, Dustin Hoffman is kind of the innocent guy who gets caught up in, they think that he's a spy or he's after them. And he's not, but it seems like he is. So Olivier's going to torture him and find out if he is the guy. So... In the film, he hasn't slept. He's being chased. And at one point, Mengele, I've got to tell the story. He puts him in the chair. For those of you who haven't seen this film, he puts him in who, the wait, dead. Who puts who in the chair? He, uh, Mengele puts um, the poor, innocent American in the chair, in the dentistry chair, because Mengele's hobby is dentistry. And he gets the drill out, and he goes, is it safe? And he goes, yeah, it's safe, it's safe. And so he doesn't please I don't believe it and he drills the tooth without any novocaine and of course kills the nerve and it's and he's screaming and screaming Dustin Hoffman and he goes it's safe it's safe it's safe so he gets away and he's running and he's had his face drilled and he's hasn't slept and and so Dustin Hoffman in real life he didn't sleep for like two days or three days so he was exhausted so when you see him on screen he's totally the raggedness is actually real and Olivier is so totally dismissive he says well, my dear boy, have you ever heard of acting? So, <laughs> so even he, even in his old age, Olivier couldn't let go of his hatred of he this. He couldn't stand method acting. Couldn't stand it. Couldn't That's stand what acting it. is for. You don't do the thing. You act like the thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to weigh in on any... I've said enough. I'm not going to say any more. We'll, we can talk about Olivier another time. But anyway, so Marilyn is of this school. So right there. And she comes in and she's like, oh, this is a play. I'm with these real actors and this like Sybil Thorndike, who was a great grand dame of the, of the London stage. And all these people were, were there. And she was completely intimidated. And she really wanted to bring her best self. And she wanted to contribute. And she had ideas. And Olivier just, he just didn't have a clue. And I don't think he meant to be mean. But he was being patronizing. She had done some screen tests or some tests. And she was like, golden magnetic she was the Marilyn and that's what he wanted he wanted to see that gossamer confection and she comes on and she just it's not working and so he says to her just be sexy that's the end that's the end it just goes from there and so she was looking at her acting coach who was uh there and Which, who was this at this point? And this was... It was um, no longer the lesbian no, acting coach. No, they'd got, she'd gotten rid of her. This is Lee Strasberg's wife, and I feel bad because I don't know her first name, and I should. So I Did she usually have female acting coaches? Yeah, only... Well, yes. Until the end. Later, well, later on, she had... An, it wasn't a coach who was on... She had an acting teacher named Michael Chekhov. Mm-hmm. And Michael Chekhov was actually related to the great Russian playwright 
Anton Chekhov. Oh. I think he was a nephew, which is pretty cool. And when we talk about Maryland psychology, he has a great insight into that. I've got the quote here. After rehearsing a scene from The Cherry Orchard with Marilyn, uh, Michael Chekhov said, Were you thinking of sex while we played the scene? When she said no, he said, All through our playing of the scene, I kept receiving sex vibrations from you, as if you were a woman in the grip of passion. I understand your problem with your studio now, Marilyn. You're a woman who gives off sex vibrations, no matter what you're doing or thinking. The whole world has already responded to those vibrations. They come off the movie screens when you're on them. I think that that is accurate. He just nailed, I guess you wouldn't call it psychology, but sort of the energetic presence of Marilyn. And in fact, she was really aware of this on some level, probably very consciously, uh, because there's a a story Eli Wallach, a co-star of hers, told, where they were walking around in New York City, and Marilyn, when she would go out incognito, she would, you know, put a scarf around her hair, maybe wear sunglasses and, you know, a a non-fancy coat. But she wasn't wearing a big, huge disguise or anything, but people really wouldn't notice her, and she could walk around uh, fairly freely. And one time when they were crossing the street in New York, all of a sudden she she kind of stood a little straighter and she looked around and all of a sudden people started noticing her and going, oh, wow, that's Marilyn Monroe. And, and, and you know, really uh, she became a center of attention. And then she relaxed and she walked away and she said to Eli Wallach, I just wanted to be Marilyn for a minute. And so this Marilyn Monroe persona was her, but it was also something she put on. It was a uh, more than a character. It was a sort of an energetic being she would uh, emanate. And I think we've all seen it on the screen. So Chekhov really did understand her, and I think he was very kind and sympathetic toward her. And she she adored him, absolutely adored him. And uh, I heard she gave him an engraving of Abraham Lincoln. No, so no. Thank you. He, he gave her one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I read online that she gave him one. Oh, okay. And said, well, now you're the man that I most admire. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's... Uh, I, Let's go with that one, because how much can one trust uh, any particular source online? So she adored him, and and unlike her other acting coach, Lee Strasberg, he did not have a a vested interest for himself in her. He just had an interest in really, truly mentoring her and helping her be a, a, a great artist, whereas Strasberg his career hinged on her. She was everything. He made so much money and he he extorted a lot of money from the studios because she was so dependent on him. But Chekhov was not that way. But let's go move on to the other really important man in her life and really kind of the final crucial relationship she had. And that's with Arthur Miller, her second husband. Well, wait a minute. Third husband. <laughs> Lost count there. Her third <laughs> husband. And I assume people know who he is, but I guess I shouldn't totally, and I should say a little bit about him. Arthur Miller, at the time Marilyn met him, was the preeminent playwright in the United States. And Miller, I believe, is still alive. In fact, Daniel Mm Day-Lewis is married to his daughter by his first marriage. And he wrote uh, several remarkable plays, but I would say that um, Death of a Salesman is one of the most perfect plays I've ever read. It is a the great American play, or one of the great American plays. Have you read Death of a Salesman, Zoe? I haven't. I would like to. Arthur Miller was basically, he kind of looked, Marilyn felt he looked like Lincoln, for one thing, <laughs> since she loved Lincoln so much, because he was tall and very gaunt, and he had the lantern cheeks, and uh, he had kind of a Lincoln look about him. And he was brilliant, and intellectual, because I mean, he was a playwright for the New York stage. I mean, this is to her the pinnacle of artistry. And, and the thing that she aspired to was to be among those people and of those people. And, you know, it's quite possible that she could have had she not been so emotionally devastated and emotionally ungrounded. Because to be in a play day after day, eight days a week, I mean, not eight days a week, eight times a week. You have to really have a lot of physical and emotional endurance. Endurance, And she just didn't. I mean, she couldn't even get to a movie set on time, much, you know. Um, so anytime that that sort of opportunity might have arisen, it just... 
There's no way. It couldn't have happened. But anyway, um, Miller uh, had had great success and on stage, and um, she had met him earlier, and I, I believe we may have mentioned this, uh, back when she was having her affair with Elia Kazan, and they had an instant connection, and she really wanted him and was interested in him, and he said he you know, shook her hand and he felt like you know, he could feel her, the movement of her body, the physicality of her, you know. <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, and I, I can see that. that she, he was probably a sensitive man, and she was putting on her Marilyn She was, she was projecting her sex vibrations through her hand like one of those buzzer toys. Yeah, right, exactly. And probably through all the rest of her body, yeah. too. And she, yeah, exactly, right. And she probably, when she was attracted to someone and wanted them, she could just power it up. And, and having that directly focused on you, especially if you're a person who is going to be sexually attracted to her, like her original agent, who was uh, the, the, the woman who was a lesbian. Who, Natasha. N- Natasha, that's right, Natasha Lightis. Her, not her agent, her uh, acting coach. Totally enamored of her. Because when Marilyn wanted someone to, to, to uh, bond with her, that's where she would go. And it worked, so you know she couldn't unlearn that. Anyway, um, Miller was married at the time and had children, and he had a, a moral sense of he didn't want to cheat on his wife. He was going to try to make the marriage work, and he went back, and there were several years that went by where they didn't see each other. And then in 1956, uh, they late 55, early 56, he came back to Hollywood, and he and Marilyn met up again, and they started an affair and even though he wasn't divorced yet pretty much his marriage was over and at this time he was also in trouble with HUAC which is the House for Un-American Activities Committee and that he was a communist supposedly they said or had communist sympathizers or knew people who were communists or whatever and they wanted him to name names essentially and what had happened at this time is Elia Kazan was also hauled up in front of the committee, and he did end up naming names. And he became ostracized and a pariah. As a snitch. As a snitch. I mean, he still had a very successful career. It didn't end his career by any means. But yeah, he was very much, you know, like he was a rat fink. And Arthur Miller just couldn't bring himself to do it. He wasn't going to do it. And to her credit, Marilyn um, visibly stuck by him. She publicly stood at his side, supported him, and, you know, she was not uh, immune to the possibility of having her career destroyed. She very well could have. Now, there was nothing in her past, and there's no way they could link her to any communist sympathizing, but she did have an FBI file, and they, and J. Edgar Hoover or whoever was reviewing her said that she's become the darling of the, of the left-wing intelligentsia and, uh, the, and the red communist fronters and that kind of thing. But she didn't care because when she was bonded to somebody, she was devoted You'll see all kinds of photographs of her, and she's constantly, she's sort of got her whole body pressed up against his side and doing her whole thing and clinging to his arm and, you know, being there with him while he's uh, undergoing all of these press conferences so, and so forth. So in 1956, she had to go to England to work with Laurence Olivier on The Prince and the Showgirl. And Miller wanted to go with her, given that they were going to be married very soon and uh, they were having their affair. But he couldn't get his passport because he was under, I mean, I'm sorry, I just got to be in, drop my jaw over the violation of civil liberties here. He wasn't under arrest. He wasn't in jail. He, you know, he hadn't done any crime and they took away his passport so he couldn't leave the country. Wow. So he had to go and he had to ask Congress to give him his passport and then there was all... All this, and I, this is just so gross. All this leering about the fact that, you know, he's with Marilyn Monroe, and nobody cared about anything. And the press didn't care about anything substantive. They only cared about his relationship with Marilyn Monroe. So he went there, and they demanded to know why he needed this passport. And he said that he needed to go to England because uh, a production of his play, A View from the Bridge, was going to be. Uh, or at least was being talked about uh, going forward in England, plus the woman who was soon to be his wife 
was filming, was uh, making a film there. And of course, that second part was the only part that anybody cared about. And as soon as he came out of Congress, it was like, oh, Mr. Miller, oh, when? And everybody wanted to know the date. When are you getting married? Blah, 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 blah. And, it, and it just was a frenzy. And he, of course, kind of tried to push them off. And I don't know. And they you know, hadn't set a date and so on and so forth. And Marilyn was there too. And so it was all kind of like a leery, winky kind of thing that went on around that, which is... Bleh. Anyway, he did get his passport, and he was allowed to leave and go to England. And once I got there, um, well, actually, I should backtrack here and say they did get married in June of that year before they went to England. I, mm. I don't want to mess up that chronology there because it is important. And the fact was is that he and Marilyn were inseparable, you know, going around together basically as if they were married. And he had a home in Roxbury. And they would go out there. It was a little town. It was bucolic and lovely and quiet and little winding roads. And so they would go out there to get away and to be together and have family time. So what happened was is they were staying out there. And the, the press, after they heard that they were actually going to get married, it became like a Princess Diana thing. And, I, you know, you're too young to remember this. But Princess Diana was hounded by the paparazzi. I mean, that they would surround her, the cars, they would chase her. And, and, and that was how she died, was in, a, in an accident on in Paris uh, with the paparazzi chasing her. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's how she died, was in, in a car accident because of that, um, that sort of being hounded in that way and trying to get away. She was, you know, the driver was trying to get her away. Well, what happened here was the opposite in that Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe were driving the car and they were trying to get away from the paparazzi and the paparazzi well they weren't really called paparazzi at the time they were reporters but the the driver of the this woman who was from paris match which was a french publication were roaring down this winding road after them trying to keep up didn't want to lose sight didn't want to lose sight of them and they careened off and hit a tree and the reporter um was taken to the hospital and ended up ended up dying and Monroe and Miller, when they heard the the accident, they stopped and they went back and they looked and they saw it and they were trying to help and then they went back home again once the, this reporter was taken off and, and Marilyn was hysterical. She was so upset that, that this had happened, this horrible thing had happened and it really just spoiled their romantic interlude and their, their time together. So what happened was is they had a press conference after the accident and said various things and then the next day they snuck away and had a clandestine wedding at a, um, a little civil ceremony and got married then uh, in secret because they did, did not want to risk anything like this happening again and then later they had a, a Jewish ceremony together um, to follow up a religious ceremony so they had that nasty thing happened, which really kind of was almost like if you were writing a play, maybe it would be a curse upon the marriage and what was going to happen in the future. Because then they went to England and she began filming. And I, you know, I talked about the, her travails with Olivier and the difficulties they were having there. But parallel with that, she was starting to have already, just within a few months, tr troubles with her marriage. And what, what happened was is one day she was, you know, puttering around, I suppose, and she went into Arthur Miller's study where he had all of his work, and she looked at the, uh, she was reading stuff on his desk, maybe snooping, probably, and she found a sort of a diary entry where he, she said, basically, that he said he was disappointed in her, that he was af afraid that he wasn't ever going to get any of his work done because she was so needy. Like, she would be up all night, and she would keep him up all night. It wasn't like, she wasn't a very thoughtful person. She was self-centered and needy, and so she wanted him to be up with her. And because she was up, because she was so anxious, she wanted him to be awake and comforting her all the time. So he didn't get any sleep at night, and then when she was off filming... He couldn't work because he was so tired he had to sleep and uh, and or she needed him to be at the studio or basically he was nursemaiding her in, in his mind and, and it, from what other people said it's probably pretty true and he you know he thought she had been such an angel when they were getting together right of course and she was so 
giving in every way, and I'm sure particularly sexually, which might have translated into that she was emotionally giving. And he, this this person was not there anymore. All of a sudden, he's seeing this other side of her. And that really created a huge rift between them because, and this is, I think this is not abnormal in that you're on your best behavior when you're trying to attract somebody and then the other part of you comes out, the rest of you comes mm-hmm. out and sometimes that person says, oh my God, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't know that this was here and it was her, I forget what she called her monster mm-hmm. where she would yell and she would throw things and she would curse and she'd be angry and violent even and he's like, what you know what do i do with this you know i i and she in her herself she wanted somebody to be able to see the 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 other part of her show so i won't say the real her because you know the loving giving person was always a, also the real her but to see the all of her and to see the dark side and to accept it and love it but the thing is it's pretty hard to love somebody who is screaming and yelling and throwing things you know but his reaction was exactly the reaction she feared, which was not like, oh, this is her, and maybe he would say, well, this isn't for me. It was more like, I'm disappointed in her. I'm, you know, and they began to immediately draw apart. And yet there was another prong to this this schism between them, and that was that Arthur Miller had always wanted to have a movie made of one of his scripts. And back when they originally met, in Monroe, he had been in Hollywood trying to sell a script, and it didn't work out. It was uh, the movie that Eli Kazan ultimately made on the waterfront. It was kind of a, a film like that. It wasn't the same thing, and they didn't use his ideas, but it was the same idea um, of the unions on the waterfront and a boxer and a, and so forth. But Miller's script just never passed muster enough, and. And that was a blow to him because, I mean, he was a preeminent playwright, right? Mm -hmm. So now he's got Marilyn. And what happens is he writes a a script that ultimately became the movie The Misfits. And he had it out there and he was, you know, trying to get it picked up for production. And, of course, he had Marilyn. And he was, well, Marilyn Monroe's going to be in this. And they're like, well, Marilyn Monroe's going to be with it in this. Maybe we better try to push this through and get it made. And at the same time, in I think in his own mind, perhaps, he thought he was giving her a gift. He was creating a script for, for her where she would be, you know, she would be a real actress. She would get the chance to do the things she wanted to do as an actor and would, you know, this was, he was giving her this, this great opportunity. And then in her mind, it was, he's using me. He, he's desperate to get a script made. He wants to get his ego fulfillment for, through getting a movie made. And he can just, you know, attach me to it. And then he can get it made. So he's just using me for his own ends. My guess is it was all of those at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It doesn't have to be one or the other. And ultimately, the film did get made. It it's, it was an okay film. But if you if you watch it, you see Miller actually did not create any kind of groundbreaking role for for Monroe he basically made her the same character the same Marilyn character with like a literary air yes exactly sort of you know okay she's a little she's kind of sad and has kind of a bad sad background but Cherry in the uh, bus stop was was really kind of the same character just not not supposedly humorous this is actually a serious version of that so he did not create anything particularly special or groundbreaking at all in in that in that script now maybe it isn't miller's fault because it was heavily rewritten and which made miller very angry but uh, they said this is just not cinematic this is not going to work so since i haven't read the original script i don't know but but the ultimate character he created is not um, not moving her forward in her artistry and it was monroe's last role last completed role and um, through the period of working through The Prince and the Showgirl, where the volatility of their relationship became obvious. And what is so interesting about this is parallel, another parallel, is that Laurence Olivier, 
who she was having the problems with, he would go home at night to his wife, Vivian Lee. And if anybody knows Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind, that's Vivian Lee. That was who he married, was married to. A very, very beautiful woman and an accomplished actor, but had mental illness problems. So he would go home to kind of the same behavior of somebody up all night, someone screaming and yelling, someone having tantrums and mm. uh, taking an emotional toll. So this was all going on in the same uh, group of people. Woof. Yeah, it was rough. Um, so ultimately what happened is uh, Monroe and Miller were only married for uh, five years. And when she came back to the, the States, she started on her new next movie, which is Let's Make Love with Eve Montand. And at, and at the end of the marriage, or as the marriage was crumbling, I think something inside Marilyn crumbled a little bit. Um, one of the things that kept her going was her hope and belief that she was going to find the man who would save her. And she would be elevated by this superior being, this in, this in, person of great artistry and intelligence and uh, strong and uh, to be her daddy. And Arthur Miller, you know, again, he fit the bill just like she fit the bill for him of being this ministering angel of love. And when they got into it, neither one found that to be true and they saw the dark side of the other. And uh, I, I honestly think something a little bit went out of Marilyn at that point because she'd had, this is her third marriage and I think she got that this wasn't going to happen in the way she had wanted it to happen. As she was, she couldn't really achieve a relationship because she wasn't looking for a real person. Yeah, exactly. Just like she wasn't portraying herself as a real person when she was trying to attract someone to her. And the world didn't want her to be a real person either. That's well, that's true. Brutal. Thanks for joining us yeah. for this part. We might have even said at the beginning, I'll go back and find out if uh, this was the last part of this series it is not there is <laughs> there one more, more part coming well there's two more parts we're going to finish Marilyn finish Marilyn's career and then we are going to talk about uh, some of her um, successors and her predecessors the people who influenced her and she was and who she influenced in turn the sort of the the um, long genealogy of the subversive blonde <laughs> thanks for joining us if you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand